Good morning. I'm Tom. If we have not met, I'm the congregational pastor here at Salem, and also be able to share with you this morning is such a great privilege. Uh, but before we do that, I would like to call our attention to a couple of things. Uh, first of all, our team that went is going down to Nicaragua has safely arrived there. We are so thankful. Yes, absolutely. So glad to have those COVID tests out of the way so you can just fly there. That's great, and they made it in one day, no hiccups, so we're very happy about that. We're also very thrilled with the generosity of you all. We had asked you to help us sponsor 70 food bags uh, to be able to share with the people down there. You guys went way over the top, <laughs> way over the top. And so we're excited about that because that probably means there's something else that the Lord wants us to do while we are down there. So I ask you to be in prayer about that and how we can... Uh, there's something else that the Lord would have us to do. You know, you just never know what the Lord is up to, but it looks like uh, he might be up to something, and we want to be ready to respond to that. Also, um, if you have not heard yet, uh, many of you know Pastor Cal from the Old First Assembly. Now, what is it? North View. North Point. That's Andy Stanley down in Georgia. North View uh, here in, in the fargo Morehead area. He suddenly passed away yesterday, very unexpectedly. And so he means a lot to us. Uh, for those of you who are around, he helped fill in the space between Pastor Glenn and Pastor Seth. Plus, he's been a youth pastor here in the community for, I don't know, 30 years? For 35? Maybe he's been here 40. I'm not exactly sure, but uh, definitely a, a big shock. Uh, he was, uh, I believe, 66. And so let's be in prayer for the church as well as his family and so many in the community that have been affected by uh, his ministry and how the Lord has used him. So let's bow in prayer before we begin our time in the Word this morning. Father, we do thank you that you are a good God. You are for us. You love us incredibly. You have provided all that we've needed. And Father, thank you, uh, first of all, for our team making it down to El Chonco. Lord, it's been two and a half long years since we've been able to uh, even get into the country and get there safely. And so thank you for that opportunity. And Lord, we do pray for your leading and guiding. You've got plans, Lord. And we want to know what those are so that we can respond and join you in what it is that you're doing. So just lead and guide and protect them as they are down there. And Father, we lift up everyone who is related to Cal some way, some shape, some form, whether family, friends, he was their pastor, us here at Salem as well. Lord, kind of a, a big surprise here, but Lord, thank you that... Uh, He's with you and able to see you face to face. Lord, he has shared you with so many over these some 30 years. And thank you, Lord, that he can experience the fullness of your presence. But Lord, for the many left behind, Father, I pray that you would comfort, that you would strengthen, and Lord, that you would inspire as well, uh, that we would be there to pick up the torches and continue the work that you've been doing through him. And Father, we do thank you so much for the privilege to be able to come together and to be in your word today. Lord, we ask you to speak to us. Lord, your, your word says that you send out your word, and it will accomplish that which it's been sent out for. And Lord, we just pray that you give us open eyes and ears and hearts for what it is that you uh, want to 
speak to us today, but then how it's going to be lived out in the days and weeks to come. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are started in a brand new series. Uh, Seth, Seth kicked off things last week, uh, talking about Proverbs and the fear of the Lord, and that we're going to be spending uh, several weeks here this summer looking at a variety of topics. And so it's my privilege to be able to uh, pick up the topic of marriage. Uh, but before I do that, I do want to review uh, the little visual aid that he shared with us. Life, is, life has a variety of things. We're trying to live life in the right way. And uh, sometimes there's things that are clearly wrong to do. There are other things that are clearly and right to do. And then there's the need for wisdom. That there are a lot of things that don't just fit squarely in those right and wrong categories. And Proverbs is here to help us figure out what's this wisdom part that we need to have in order to go through life. So like I mentioned, my topic is marriage. And so, you know, how should we dig into Proverbs to figure out what Proverbs might have to say about marriage? Now, one of the things that I really, really like about being alive in the technological age is the search button. You know, back in the day when I came to faith and we were, you know, said, okay, let's do a word study on this, you had to pick up a big fat concordance and look up the word like love and then chase out all of those verses flipping back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Now you just type the word in love, boom, and then it shows up like three million times in the Bible and they're all right there for you and you did not have to flip one single page. So I'm thinking that could be kind of handy as we talk about marriage. What does... Proverbs have to say about marriage. Let's look up the word marriage. And how many times do you suppose the word marriage shows up in Proverbs? Want to take a guess? You're correct. Zero. <laughs> marriage is not talked about in Proverbs. Well, let's go to communion and we'll close in prayer and be done today. <laughs> well, maybe not. Uh, so I looked up the word marry. Guess how many times the word marriage showed up? Correct. Zero. Oh, okay. All right, let's go for husband. Let's go for husband. How many times do you suppose husband showed up? Six. Well, okay, that's not exactly overwhelming, but it's something. So let's go ahead and get started with that. Let's check out the six verses in Proverbs that talk about husbands. So first of all, we see in Proverbs 6, 34... For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. Guess what we're talking about here? I don't think we need to guess. But just in case you were wondering, uh, you know, you're not supposed to be chasing after somebody else's wife. Don't do that. All right, so that's some guidance. That's very clear. Don't do that. Let's move on to the next one. Psalm, or sorry, Proverbs 6, 19. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. Don't need to guess what's going on there either. Okay, well, this time, instead of the husband chasing after this woman, this woman is chasing after him. And what's his response supposed to be? No, don't do that. Okay, well, that, that is very good and helpful advice. It's clear, do not do that. Let's move on to Proverbs 12, 4. A wife of noble character is her husband's crown, 
but a disgraceful wife is like decay in his bones. All right, well, what do we do with that? Well, first of all, this is a general statement of let's kind of like what that looks like. But how could we make a personal application to that? Let's go for the wife then and say, do be of noble character. Okay, so we'll drop one in there. Do be of noble character. Now, noble character talks about having or showing fine personal qualities or high moral principles and ideals. Should she do that? Absolutely. Will that be a, a good thing for the husband? Absolutely. So there's a do for the wife. Let's go to Proverbs 31, 11. Many of you are perhaps familiar with Proverbs 31, 11, and it's an entire chapter talk, talking about the, uh, the advice to a wife to be of noble character. And in this case, uh, if she's of that noble character, her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. So there's a good do for wives. Do be of noble character. Two votes for that one. Let's move on to 31.23. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. And again, we're in 31. What is the wife being encouraged to do? To be of noble character. And again, what a blessing that will be to her husband. So another vote for do be noble. And now let's go to 31.28. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. All right, now we've got something for the guy to be doing. You've got this wife, and how should you be talking about her? What should you be doing? Well, call her blessed and praise her. There's a couple of good do's. In fact, let's go ahead and put two votes on that one. Bless her and praise her. Those are some really, really good things. But you know, that is six verses out of 915. Can we find any more advice about wisdom in Proverbs? Well, let's go ahead and look up the word wife. Let's see what we can come up with here. Wives. Verses that use the word wife. Now, this is an interesting thing. First of all, we've got 15 verses. All right, we're getting somewhere. We've gone from 6 to 15. Now, one of these is actually a repeat from the husband. So the word husband and the word wife are showing up in the same one. So we've done that already. Interestingly, there are five that have some advice for the husband. And it's the same advice all five times. Stay away from the wayward woman. Stay away from the wayward woman. Stay away, stay away, stay away. Okay, do stay away. Five votes for that. I kind of wonder what Solomon's thinking here. It's like, this is like the number one thing. Husbands, get this one right. Stay away from other women. And I can imagine, just imagine his if, he, if they had had pornography back then like we do now, it's like, and stay away from the pictures of the other wife. Just stay way, way, way away. So that's five of them that have the word wife in them. Then there are five verses that talk about advice to the wife. Anybody want to guess what those are? I mean, those are the ones that usually get some giggling going on when you read them. 
Do not be quarrelsome. Five votes on that one. Do not be quarrelsome. He said um, it's better to be in a desert than to be with a quarrelsome, quarrelsome wife. It's better to live on the corner of the roof than to live under the roof with a quarrelsome, quarrelsome wife. Or, and then there's an interesting picture, living under the roof with a quarrelsome wife in a house with a leaky roof when there's a rainstorm. That's what it's like. So that would be five votes against being quarrelsome. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. How many did I do? Four, five, there we go. All right, five times. Don't be doing that. So we got, interesting, huh? Guys, stay away from the other women. Women don't be quarrelsome. Might be a high priority item here as Solomon is being led to write these verses. But then there are some other verses that we like to take a particular look at. So let's take a look at 518. May your fountain be blessed, and you, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Okay, there's a vote for the guys. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. But let's think about that for a minute. Who was that person that you married? I mean, do you realize that you are not married to the same person that you were married to? No, I mean, not a different person. Person, just your same person, but they're a different person now. In fact, that actually, you find that actually happened the day after you got married. Okay? Um, Gary Thomas is uh, the one who uh, pointed this one out, and I think it's so good. He said, you know, when you first fell in love with this, your spouse, you actually fell in love with your ideal version of that person. You know, you, you didn't kind of notice all those other things, right? It's like, oh yeah, whatever, whatever. This is such the right person. We are so in love. Two people couldn't be more in love than we are in this world. What could possibly go wrong? That's the person that you thought you were marrying. But then you got married and then you had to spend 24-7 with them. And eventually you found out who they really were. Because we, we did work pretty hard, right, to put our best foot forward and all of that, and to be patient on the outside when we weren't on the inside, but eventually we get to go home and then go, ah, whatever. <laughs> so the person you married already is a different person than you were dating, because now the rose-colored glasses are falling off. But then you stay married, and life happens, and you change. I mean, I could ask my wife, am I the same guy that you married well, let's go back a little even further. Am I the same guy that you met 40 years ago? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I, I used to look good in a Speedo. <laughs> but that was, what, 40 years ago, 30 pounds ago? No, no, that's not happening. So, yes, I'm very different on the outside. But there is that part on the inside, too, that is very different. I mean, we have life happen. Bad things happen. They change you. You make responses to things. If you went this way, you went that way, you became a little different, a little different, a little different. And there's not a lot of me that's the same as what she married way back 38 years ago. So, Solomon is not saying, visualize that guy in a Speedo 
Don't look at them, just visualize it and rejoice in the husband of your youth. No, it's like enjoy, rejoice in that wife that you married. She's changed, you've changed, keep on rejoicing in that. That's a good idea there. Rejoice in the wife or the husband of your youth. You know, we're doing life together. And when that car hits a bump, both of us feel that. We're in it together. Let's go on to Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Now, first of all, I look at that and go, you know, that's a really nice just statement. Yeah, you get a wife. I mean, assuming it's a good wife, not the dripping <laughs> and vice versa. That assuming that you, there was a decent person, finding a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Yes, a happy marriage is a blessing. So what I would encourage here as an application is to say, yes, this is good. View marriage as a good thing from God. He did provide you with your wife. Come at it from the perspective of marriage is a good thing, and we're working at this together. You know, uh, there are lots of things that uh, people say, oh, you got married, uh, on go the handcuffs. Or, you know, they say, you know, here's the world's smallest handcuffs. You know, it's like, no. He says, don't view it that way. So do view marriage as the good thing that God created it to be. Let's move on to Proverbs 19.14. Houses and wealth are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, I will be getting an inheritance someday, and that will be nice. But having a prudent wife, where'd that come from? Cracker Jack's box? No. Good luck. You won the lottery? Well, I feel like I won the lottery, but... That wasn't where my wife came from. My wife is from the Lord. This is a great gift. So wife, do be prudent. This is good. Husband advice. Do recognize that your wife is that gift. Think of her as a gift. In fact, when was the last time you thought about your wife as a gift? You know, when you look at it that way, the argument that we're just about to have takes a different twist. It's like, wait a minute, this, I am discussing now with this gift from the Lord, this difficulty that I'm having. Hopefully that takes the harshness or the demandingness or any other evil out of the equation because I am talking now to a gift from the Lord. So wives do be prudent and husbands do Recognize the blessing from the Lord that it is to have a prudent wife. Let's go on to Proverbs 31.10. A wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Well, once again, this is another vote for the wives. Do be noble. What do we have? At least six, maybe seven votes for that already. Do be noble. But then right along that with the husband is do appreciate, do treasure that wife that God has given to you. We've both got things to do there. All right, 
So we, now we've got these 20 verses, and do we have some good advice there? Absolutely. There's some really clear stuff that Proverbs is providing for us. Husbands, do not be chasing after other women. Do rejoice in the wife of your youth. Do praise and bless her. Do recognize your wife as a gift from the Lord. That's four, guys. The women have got two. Be noble and prudent. Don't be quarrelsome. Now, if we both did our parts in this, how much would your marriage increase in happiness, fulfillment? If we just did those, if we pretend for a tiny moment there's only six things that you need to do, guys, here's your four, gals, here's your two, if that's the only thing that we needed to do for marriage, wouldn't that be awesome? And if we did those things, it would be a huge blessing. But you know, there is more. In fact, there are still some 895 verses in Proverbs that we haven't talked about yet. Do none of them have anything else to do about marriage? Well, not exactly, because there are some that do provide some very specific information, but it's not just marriage. Like, don't use harsh words. You know, does that apply inside marriage and outside marriage? Absolutely. Be kind, be gentle, be encouraging, do what is right, those kinds of things. There are lots of those directions, and we could continue to put those in here. But we don't have time for all that unless we turn it into a summer-long series on marriage in Proverbs. So we'll keep moving along, but there are lots of other things, and I'll leave that to your discovery as you go, wait a minute, those would be good things for me to be doing in my marriage. In fact, doing them in marriage would be even more important than doing that with everybody else, because this is the most important relationship of all. So we've gotten done talking about a variety of specific things that we can be doing. Now for this middle category, what are some general kinds of things that Proverbs would give us as advice for doing marriage well? And the first thing that Proverbs would definitely be saying to us is, fear the Lord. We definitely need to do that. In fact, we could drop in 15 of these marbles. Do I have enough to do that? Uh, maybe not, but fear the Lord. This is huge. Let's look at Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. We do need to fear the Lord. Without the fear of the Lord, we will never find the wisdom that we really need for doing marriage. So fear the Lord. But what does that mean? What does fear of the Lord mean? I think of it helpful, I think it helpful to think of the fear of the Lord as living life in the full recognition of the presence and the power and the righteousness of the Lord. Living with that at the forefront, living with that at the top. In fact, this makes me think of a Christmas song. Yes, a Christmas song in the middle of July. Santa Claus is coming to town. What should we be doing? Well, that song tells us that he sees us when we're sleeping. He knows when we're awake. He knows when we've been bad or good. So, be good for goodness sake, okay? That would be living in the fear of Santa. It's not like you're scared to death of him, okay? But it's like, wait a minute, Santa is watching. Okay, that concept has creeped out more than just a few kids. <laughs> Santa can see me when I'm sleeping? Ah! 
That was scary enough thinking about some man climbing down my chimney and he's watching me while I'm sleeping. Creepy. But on the other hand, that does motivate some fear, motivate you to think about, wait a minute, Christmas is getting here soon. I had better be good for goodness sake. Yes. Or maybe it would be helpful to think of the fear of the Lord like this. Imagine that you're going to a high school or junior high party, a dance. You're going to be there, and you're going to be hanging out with your friends. So you go, you're having this really great time, and then you look around and you go, I recognize you. You're my parents. Oh, my parents have been asked to chaperone this party. That fact will now color every decision I make the rest of the evening, right? Oh, interesting. So that would be living in the fear of my parents. Not because I'm scared to death of them, but it's like if I do something wrong, I might be in trouble when I get home. So I had better straighten up and fly right. Now maybe some of you can't relate to that because you are the rebel. I don't care what my parents think. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'll take my punishment. I'll get over it. And there's no repentance, no regret, and that. Well, that would be not living in the fear of your parents. So that's kind of the concept then of living in the fear of the Lord. Not that we're scared to death of him, but we're aware. It's like, wait a minute, God is watching. I do need to be doing what's right. That top of mind awareness kind of thing. The fear of the Lord is a big deal. What are we going to do? You know, I think about the fear of the Lord, it appears 15 times. And like in the, in the book of Proverbs, you know, even though it's only 15 times specifically that phrase showing up, it is like an underlying drumbeat all the way through the book. And that's the way that it needs to be in my life, an underlying drumbeat all the time. That then sets me in to being ready to grow in wisdom. Because wisdom is a huge part of Proverbs. I don't have a hundred marbles with me here, but you could drop them right here. <laughs> because wisdom shows up, wisdom and foolishness and all of that, more than a hundred times. Now that's a big deal in Proverbs. So with all of the options of the verses to look at that refer to wisdom, in Proverbs, I would like to focus on just a couple of them here. In fact, there, it's an interesting passage in Proverbs chapter 9. So let's check this out. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants, and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. For me, this is really helpful. And it's an inspiring picture of what is wisdom. And the picture that's being painted here is interesting. Wisdom is a lady who is inviting those who have no sense to come and feast at her house where wisdom is served in abundance. The food speaks of fellowshipping together. There's a relationship with wisdom that is to be pursued over a lifetime. 
There's this invitation that's being sent out, and it goes all over the city again and again. The invitation is to gain insight and to walk in it, and the end result is life. That's what we're after. But later on in Proverbs 9, there's the picture of another lady in the same town, and her name is Lady Folly. So we'll go to verse 13. And let's look for both the similarities and the differences that are here. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there and that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Wow. The, interest, uh, the similarities and the differences for me are really telling because wisdom and foolishness have in some ways very similar looks, but there's something that's off. The similarities here, we see a house, we hear a People calling from the highest points of the city, they're calling to the same group, and it's an invitation to dinner. Same thing, and yet there are differences. Lady Folly is unruly, she is simple, and actually doesn't know anything. And then there's something off with the meal. Last of all, you can't see it, but the dead are there, even though they seem to be alive. Ooh. This is, means it's going to be work. Wisdom isn't going to be just something that just falls down out of the tree into your grocery basket and boom, you've got what you need. There's going to need to be a pursuit. We're going to need to go looking. We're going to need to go looking carefully because sometimes they look very similar, but they're also very different. The pursuit of wisdom in Proverbs 2. I was in my devotions a couple days ago and went, oh, this is perfect. Because in those first five verses, listen to how the writer of Proverbs describes this pursuit of wisdom. Tune your ear to it. Apply your heart. Call out for it. Cry aloud for it. Look for it as silver. Search for it as a treasure. Do you see that? Pursue, pursue, pursue. We cannot stop chasing after it. It's like, okay, I got a piece of wisdom. I'm done. It's like, nope. Continually, there's more. There's more. So we're going to pursue wisdom. So there's the call in many ways. What should we do with the fear of the Lord? Do it, do it, do it, do it. Fear, fear, fear Him. And with wisdom, it's pursue it, pursue it, pursue it, pursue it, pursue it. Okay? Those are two very clear directions that we need to go in terms of trying to find general things. How do I apply this? We had some good specifics, but how do we generally seek out this wisdom and live it out, especially in our marriages? Well, the first thing we need to do is, again, that's fear the Lord. What does the Lord say about marriage. And again, that could be an entire series on its own, but I'd like to, fo like to focus on just one thing that I think makes really, really clear 
What's up with marriage? And it's found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. The verse says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. That's the purpose. This comes right after, here it is, God has created all of this. We've got male, we've got female, and the Lord says, because of what I've just done here, I declare that marriage is to be these two coming out from their family and becoming one. And this is way beyond just the fact that they're going to procreate. There is a oneness that they are to be experiencing. That's what God has created marriage for. I mean, think of it. You know, God could have created Adam and Eve at the same time. Poof, poof. But did he do it that way? Nope. He did create Adam, but when he went to create Eve, what else could he have done? Maybe he'd go back to that same pile of dirt like he did for Adam, scrape some together, put it together, and here's a woman. Okay, we've got two. But that's not how he did it. He said, I've got Adam, and we need one more, so we're going to take a rib from here, and now we're going to make two. Where did that two come from? It came from one. His purpose in designing marriage is that the two would experience that same kind of oneness that Adam and Eve experienced. They got it at the front end. These two really were one because they came from one. But now the call is for these two, forever and ever, a husband, a wife, are to pursue this oneness. Well, that sounds lovely. That sounds good. But we're in the real world, right? Well, not far behind comes chapter 3. Okay, they ate from the tree. Things are bad. God gives them a bunch of curses. But I'd like to focus on just this one from Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is the particular curse that God issued to Eve, and so this is her that's being dealt with here. He says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Short version here is, God has declared that there will be war between husband and wife. There will be conflict. That's a part of the curse. That's the way that it's set up. Each one wants to be in charge. Yeah, that's right. Amen. At the end of the day, that's what it is. There's nothing like marriage to reveal our selfishness. Nothing like it. In fact, um, Tim Keller, there we go, talks about the meaning of marriage. And he, tongue-in-cheek, talks about three phases of marriage. You get married, and eventually phase one will hit where you realize, wow, I have really married a selfish person. Eventually, phase two will kick in, and you'll begin to realize, oh, wait, I'm a really selfish person. But then you move very quickly to phase three, but my spouse is more selfish than I am. <laughs> Been there, done that, right? Yep, it, it, it's a me problem. In fact, uh, when we, Deb and I work with couples, we, uh, I readily admit that I had a lot of arguments with, her, with Deb. And Deb goes, you know, first time she was like, what? I don't remember. They're in my head. 
I'm having this argument with her and laying things out, and as I listen to myself discuss my point, I find three things very common. Me, I, and mine. And so many of the arguments end right there because it's like, wait a minute, I'm really being selfish here. This is a me problem. Genesis chapter 3, it's right there. It's a part of life. We are going to have conflict. Ugh. God has called us to oneness, and he says, and here's a whole bunch of conflict for you. Here's adversity for you. Have at it. <laughs> Help? What do I do? What can I possibly do with this? We are against each other. How do we do it? How can we reach such a tall order? Well, Paul has some wisdom for us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. He says when we see this battle that we've got going on, Paul calls us in Ephesians 5, 21, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Oh. Here it is, I want to be, you know, I, I like submit, right? You know, somebody's on top, somebody's responsible, and that, and Paul says, no, submit to whom? Each other. I have submitting to do to my wife. She has submitting to me to do. Instead of the Genesis 3, I'm in charge. No, I'm in charge. No, I'm in charge. Paul says, no, flip that thing clear around. What can I do for you? No, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? And we build each other up. That's our wisdom in this. It's not to give in to that fleshly desire to, I'm in charge, I'm in charge, but no, I'm in it for you. In fact, that's one of the big changes that we have to make once we do get married. You know, we talked about being a different person. I mean, when we dated, why did we like the person that we were dating? Because of what we got out of it. Yes, I love this person who blesses me, worships me, will do anything for me. We'll get married, and eventually it's like, wait a minute, this has got to turn. If this is going to work, how do I serve you? How do you serve me? How do we help each other win instead of making sure that we win? Wow, that's a tall order. God has called us to oneness, and yet our core fights against us. How can we possibly do that? Well, honestly, it's going to take a miracle. It's going to take Jesus at work. We need help. How much help do we need? How much help do you feel like you need in your marriage? I'd like to call out a couple questions here. First of all, ask yourselves, as you look at your spouse and your marriage, are we roommates or are we best friends? You know, so many times couples are actually just, they're roommates. Each is pursuing their own thing. They connect when they need to, but I'm doing my thing, you're doing your thing. When I can't do my thing, I'm mad at you. When you can't do your thing, you're mad at me. 
Are we roommates or are we best friends? Are we working at this together? Another question we can ask is, when you disagree, are you fighting to win or fighting to under or trying to understand? There's a huge difference, but most of the time we're in it to win it. And Paul says, no, nothing like that. Seek to understand. What is it that's bothering you about this? I want to know. I want to understand. Even if I don't agree with you, I want to hear. I want to understand. And my number one job is not to fix you, but to understand you. How kind of, what kind of difference would that make in our relationships? Oh, just the difference between night and day. <laughs> wouldn't be that much. It would be huge. Another question to even ask is, is it our money or is it my money and your money? When we talk with our premarital couples, thankfully most of them say it's our money. It's going into one checking account. We are not putting a big line between mine and yours. Okay, there might be a time when that's appropriate, so I will never say never, but most of the time, it's already a revelation of, are you in it for you, or are you in it for us? I remember one particular gal who was broken-hearted because she realized what she had done in college. She had taken out all the loans that she needed to do whatever it is that she wanted to do. She was $50,000 in debt, and now she's getting married. And you're going, oh, I've strapped my husband with $50,000 debt. It's like, well, let's think about that a little different. This is our debt now. What are we going to do with our debt? This is a team thing that we are doing here now. It, do not separate mine and yours. Except if God writes it on a whiteboard. <laughs> it says, don't. Because this is a team thing. We're in it together. We're in it to win it together, not separately. You know, it reminds me of, we talk about, you know, what causes problems in marriage. And one of them is often said to be what? Finances. Something that causes problems. Like, no, not exactly. Finances just reveal what's already there. My selfishness is always already well intact when I'm looking at it in terms of what's mine and what's yours. How are we doing on oneness? That's a tall order. And it's not a suggestion, you know, like one of the ten suggestions in Exodus 20, though they are commandments. It's like we are to be experiencing this oneness. We do have this conflict. And yet we're still called to that. How do we do that? Well, we got to be submitting. Well, I don't really want to that bad. That's not necessarily my first response. What do we do? How do we do that? So let's take a look at John 17, 21. Just a while back, we had a, a three-part series on John 17 as Jesus is praying. He's praying for himself and what's coming up. He's praying for his disciples. And now he gets to the part where he's praying for us the people who are going to believe because of the testimony of the disciples. 
And in this prayer, Jesus prays, I pray that, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Crazy. Jesus is calling to us to that same kind of oneness, that we are so one as believers, the world goes, whoa, you must be hanging out with Jesus. There's something very, very different about you. And that's the same kind of oneness that God is calling us to when he set up marriage. We are to be one. How are we going to do that? Jesus is already praying for us. He started praying for you and for me more than 2,000 years ago, that we may be one, both as brothers and sisters in Christ, but then how much more in our marriages that we would be an example of that love lived out. Our lives can be a testimony to that. But what's got to happen? We need Jesus to work. And there's a book that my previous assistant, two assistants ago, I forget. Uh, some of you remember Sue Bracewell. And uh, she was wanting to work on her marriage, and so she had gotten a book. And so she had been reading it, and she left it laying around the house. Well, just imagine when a, her daughter, who was about third grade, fourth grade, maybe fifth, sees this book, and she picks it up and reads the title. If you don't die to self, I may have to kill you. <laughs> She's a little disturbed in her righteous, pure soul. Mom! But that is, that is a part of the key, isn't it? We are going to have to die to self. It's not about me. But I want it to be. Me too. But that's not the way God has set it up to be. We're going to need to die. Well, how do we do that? Jesus. Jesus will give us the help that we need. He's been praying for us for 2,000 years already, and he's not going to stop. He wants to see that oneness in his church. He wants to see that oneness in our marriages because he wants to be seen throughout the world. We need his help. And is it there? Absolutely. He's praying for it. Let's cooperate with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the wisdom that you've given us in Proverbs. Lord, thank you for the specifics that you've given us. And Lord, thank you, too, for the, the generalities of fearing you and seeking after wisdom with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, we are a selfish lot, and that comes as no surprise to you. And yet, Father, we do thank you that through the shed blood of Christ, we have that forgiveness that we need, that those times when we do place ourselves above others and above you, there's forgiveness. We could repent. We can be forgiven. We can be restored. Father, would you help us? Lord, we know that we are to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, would you help us to start there? And then, Lord, would you help us to love those around us, whether brothers and sisters in Christ or our own spouses? Lord, would you help us to love well, that we might make your name glorious? 
And Father, as we share now the, the symbols of your blood and your broken body, Lord, speak to our hearts individually because that's what you do best. And Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. Lord, we really have been forgiven. Help us to walk in that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.